He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who, want to, uh, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Another question from God this morning. Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. This is the word of the Lord, and we are thankful for it this morning. So in Mark chapter 8, his disciples are on the road. I told you to take note of that, or on the way, as it says in Scripture. But it's on the road, and they're getting near Jerusalem. On the road, the narrator uses that phrase a lot in the, the Gospel of Mark. On the road or on the way, because Mark is a rapid-moving gospel. It goes fast. Like, there's no room for details. There's no time for little stories that the other gospels have. He just gets right into it, and he keeps going on. And Mark is structured in a very interesting way. Many scholars believe that the way Mark structured his gospel was that you're supposed to be able to read it so that as the book of Mark ends... You can start it all over again reading it, and it works like a cycle. Try that sometime. It's very interesting. Because it ends not so much in the way that a normal gospel does. It ends with the disciples running away in fear and trembling. And if you start over again with Mark 1, chapter 1, it leads right into the first verse. And you read it as a cycle all over again. Because the story of Christ goes on and on and on and continues to this day. So on the way, on the road, his disciples will learn a whole bunch of harsh lessons about the rigors of following Jesus. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, when something happens, it usually happens on the road or on the way while they're traveling from place to place. Aren't some of the best and worst stories that we have to tell things that happen on the way? The things that happen on the road. One story I heard years ago, I read it in Youth Specialties magazine. When, I guess that's still a magazine. I don't know. I haven't been a youth pastor for a long time. But uh, I read this story. It was, uh, it was youth workers, mission trip, nightmares. And uh, one youth worker took his group in a church van. And there's about 15 or 16 of them in this church van. They're going down the road. And one of the teens on this crowded bus going down the interstate throws up. And it causes a chain reaction because the person sitting next to them saw them throw up and they weren't sick, but after seeing it, they were. And so they went, threw up as well. And this caused another chain reaction and the person next to them threw up. Before they were done, the entire crew in the van, every single person on the van had thrown up as they were traveling in a van of vomit. I mean, disgusting, disgusting stuff. And the youth pastor had to pull over and hose out the van, where he himself followed suit several times while he was spraying out the van. Horror stories that happened on the road. My friend, Ben DeBono, he hosts a podcast, which you guys should really check out. Some of you who like sci-fi stuff like I do and are Christians. He's actually the one that got me into Doctor Who. Where's my Doctor Whovians in here? Okay, yeah, I got a couple of them in here. All right. He got me into Doctor Who a while back. <coughs> He's a hiker, and he took... Just like three weeks ago, he went on a hiking trip to Canada. And literally on the path, or on the way, on the road, he was walking and said they chose this path in Canada because they had read about it as being a place that was a little easier as than the trail they went on the year before. 
They said if you went for about the first five kilometers, it was going to be kind of rough. But everything they'd read about it said after that first five kilometers, the rest of their trip was going to be smooth. And they had three to five days, I think it was, of hiking that they were going to be going on. So true to the, the brochure, they actually got the first five kilometers. It was kind of rough. It was a lot of uphill hiking. But they made it to the end of that stretch, sat down, had their lunch. They're having a nice day, enjoying themselves. They had a good, let's see, I think it would be the equivalent of about three to four miles left to walk for the end of the day. And they expected it to be flat, smooth. Well, it was flat, and it was fairly smooth, but it, the trail was not very well kept. And what they didn't know going into it was there had been a whole lot of rain and a whole lot of flooding. And for the next roughly four miles, they were in mud up to their knees. Literally trudging through it was like swampland. It took them to get four miles, nearly nine hours, to trudge through this muck and through this mire. And that's not the worst part of the story. My friend Ben, he wore the wrong pants that day. He wore blue jeans, which you shouldn't wear when you're hiking. Because to be delicate about it, jeans will sort of rub your legs raw. And his thighs and everything just became completely rubbed raw to the point that he couldn't stand, he couldn't walk. He, when it came time to put some salve on, he said he was howling in pain at the camp. He just couldn't move. The story gets even worse because the next morning he was hoping it would be a little better and they could hike because they had three more days of hiking to go and he couldn't move and he began to have panic attacks. And he began just needing help and telling his friends, I need to get out of here. They had to be evacuated by a boat that would come to this place where they were because that was the only way to get there. Uh, so they ended up taking a really nice boat ride and then they went back and stayed in the hotel and recuperated for about three days. It was a rough journey on the road, but they made it through. All this is to say some of the best stories, even if they're bad things that happen, they end up making the best stories to tell. They happen on the road. So on the road, or on the way, Jesus and his disciples are walking towards Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus gives the disciples a pop quiz. Who do people say that I am? Well, the disciples list the answers that are going around. Everybody agrees that Jesus is somebody who's returned from the past. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the other prophets. So they're telling Jesus what everybody's saying about him. What the scuttlebutt on the street is. The word on the street. And then... He asked them a question. It's one of the few cases where Jesus actually uses a singular phrase when he's talking to them. He's talking to all of them, but he's address, addressing it to them each individually. Who do you say that I am? It's our question from God this morning that I think he asks every one of us. I know what everybody says about me. You know what I have said about Jesus this week. But I need to ask you this morning... Because I believe God is asking us, who do you personally say Jesus is? Well, Peter is fearless. And he steps right up and answers, you are Christos, definition, anointed one. You are the Mashiach, the Messiah in Hebrew. And immediately in Mark, Jesus sternly warns them not to tell anyone. Does this seem strange to anybody? This seems like, it seems strange to you. Me too. I mean, it seems weird. If you're the Messiah, don't you want everybody to know about this? I mean, Jesus never does things the way you expect. But he immediately says, okay, 
We've established it. Now don't tell anybody. Well, let's look at why maybe Jesus would tell them that. Let me ask you a question, first of all. What religion were Jesus and his disciples? Jewish. Yeah, I heard somebody say it. They are a part of Judaism. Now, the question is, what do Jews believe about the Messiah? I'm very fortunate that right around the corner from where I live is a Jewish temple. And I've built a little bit of a relationship with them. And they're able to give me resources that help me know, even to this day, what the Jews are expecting from a Messiah. And you guys might find this interesting. So if you actually go to a website called JewFAQ.org, it's a place that Orthodox Jews have set up so that people can ask questions about what the Messiah is and what they expect. And the Jews are still waiting for this day for the Messiah to come. So I'm going to share with you straight from what the Jews say about who the Messiah is, what they expect, and why they are still waiting on the Messiah, okay? And this is part of the reason why Jesus has said not to tell anybody at this point in the Gospel. So you ready to hear what the Jews say about what the Messiah is, what Jewish people expect from Messiah? This is straight from Judaism. The idea of Mashiach is an ancient one in Judaism. The Jewish idea of Mashiach, or Messiah, is the great human leader uh, like King David, not a savior. A king, but not a savior. There is much speculation about when the Mashiach will come. They always call him Mashiach. The Bible identifies several tasks that the Mashiach will accomplish. Jews do not believe in Jesus because he did not accomplish these tasks. What are these tasks? You ready to hear what that is? The Mashiach will be a great political leader, descended from King David. The Mashiach is often referred to as Mashiach ben David, Mashiach, the son of David. He will be well-versed in Jewish law, observant of all of its commandments. He will be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow example. He will be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But above all, he will be a human being. He will not be a god. He will not be a demigod, and he will not be any part of a supernatural being. He will just be a man. Straight from Judaism. It has been said that in every generation a person is born with a potential to be the Mashiach. If the time is right for the Messianic age within that person's lifetime, then the person will be the Mashiach. But if that person dies before he completes the mission of the Mashiach, then that person will not be the Mashiach because Messiahs do not die. Before the time of the Mashiach, there will be war and suffering. Mashiach will bring about political and spiritual redemption of the Jewish people by bringing us back to Israel and restoring Jerusalem. He will establish a government in Israel that will be center of all the world governments, both for Jew and Gentile alike. He will rebuild the temple and reestablish its worship. He will restore the religious court system of Israel and establish Jewish law as the law of the land. Olam Haba, the Messianic age. These are words I have trouble pronouncing. I'm going to do my best. The world after the Messiah comes is often referred to in Jewish literature as Olam Haba, the world to come. Say that with me. Olam Haba. I can't even say it. Olam Haba. Say it one more time. Olam Haba. The world to come. This term can cause some confusion because it's also used to, re to refer to a spiritual afterlife. 
The English, in English, Jews commonly use the term messianic age to refer specifically to the time of the Messiah. Olam Haba will be characterized by the peaceful coexistence of all people. Hatred, intolerance, and war will cease to exist. There won't be any more war ever again on earth. Some authorities suggest that the laws of nature will change so that predatory beasts will no longer prey and agriculture will bring forth supernatural abundance. Others, however, say that these statements are merely an allegory for peace and prosperity. So that necessarily doesn't have to happen, okay? That, but, but all these other things Jewish people say has to happen. All the Jewish people will return from exile among other nations to their home in Israel. The law of Jubilee will be reestablished in the land. Um, Jubilee is where every seven years the idea of all debts being forgiven, everything being set right, and you start over again. Which that would be great. I'd love that. I, I would only buy a car every seven years because then I wouldn't have to pay it back. You know, it'd be great. Um, and then Olam Haba, the whole world will recognize the Jewish God as the only true God and the Jewish religion as the only true religion. There will be no murder, no robbery, no competition, no jealousy. There will be no sin. Sacrifices will continue to be brought in the temple, but these will be limited to thanksgiving offerings because there will be no further need for atonement offerings. Some Gentiles have tried to put an ugly spin on this theology, they say, claiming that Jews plan to force people to convert to their religion, perhaps based on our own religion's history of, do of doing that. That is not at all how Jews understand the Messianic age, though. They be we believe, and I'm speaking on behalf of the Jews from where I read this, we believe that in the future time, everyone will simply know what the truth is. In the same way that we know 2 plus 2 equals 4. They'll just know. There will no longer be any reason to argue about it. And when Mashiach comes, theological truths will be equally obvious to mankind. There will be no more reason to argue about it. So all theological debate will end at that point. So what about Jesus? I'm almost done giving to you what Jews say about what their expectations for Messiah is. Jews do not believe Jesus was the Messiah, the Mashiach. He simply did not fulfill the mission of the Mashiach, as it is described in biblical passages cited above. Jesus did not do the things the scripture said the Messiah would do. In fact, Deuteronomy 21-23 says, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Throughout Jewish history, there have been many people who have claimed to be the Mashiach, followers who have claimed they were the Mashiach, and there have even been people who have come closer than Jesus to being the Mashiach. Simon bar Chova, Shabbati Zvi, I can't say it even, Jesus and many more, others too numerous to name, the Jews say. But all these people died without fulfilling the mission of the Mashiach, therefore none of them were the Mashiach. The Mashiach, the Olam Haba, lie in the future, not in the past. So I've taken these words straight from Judaism, from what they believe about the Messiah. Does anything I'm telling you about that surprise you a little bit? I mean, why do you think Jesus told them not to tell anyone who he was? Because immediately after establishing that Jesus was Messiah... Immediately after, they just affirmed, you are the Messiah, you are the Lord, that's what we believe about you. All those things that I just read, that's exactly what the disciples were expecting from a Messiah. 
That's exactly what the Jewish society was expecting from Messiah. All those things had to happen. He had to accomplish every one of those things or he was not the Messiah. And they had faith. They believed he was him. But immediately after Jesus affirming through the disciples that he was this Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody. Jesus starts to tell them that because he immediately tells them all the things he's going to do that disqualify him from being the Messiah. He's supposed to be a charismatic military leader. He's supposed to be descended from David who will win battles and be universally accepted by all. Meaning universally means everybody accepts him. He's supposed to be completely human. Not half God, not half man, not all God, not all man. Just human. No God about it. He will establish a government in Israel that will rule the entire world. And if the Messiah dies without fulfilling every one of these things, then he's not the Messiah. The Jews are very clear about this. Messiahs don't die. Jesus immediately, after affirming he is the Messiah, tells them he's going to die. He immediately says something, and then their mind goes, Well, no. Well, that means you're not the Messiah. He began to teach them the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus confirms he is the Messiah by showing him that he will do the exact opposite of what the Messiah was expected to do. I find this fascinating. Suffering, dying, resurrecting, these are all supernatural things. Is it any wonder Peter starts to rebuke Jesus and say, No, Jesus! You're going about this all wrong. He was expecting man's idea of Messiah. And Jesus shows us this thing. If we believe Jesus is God's word made flesh, Jesus shows us that God will not conform to the ideas of man for what Messiah will be. That Jesus is the final word. That God gets to say, not us. If God wants to reinterpret and reimagine human history, and the expectations of mankind, God who created us has every right to do it. He said to them quite openly, and took Peter aside, and Peter began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at the disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you have been setting your mind on the, on, not on divine things, but on human things. Here again we see the followers of Jesus acting like the devil. Peter rebukes his own teacher. The Messiah is supposed to be a mighty person who restores the kingdom of Israel and corrects everything that's gone wrong. What's all this talk of suffering and death? Peter has a point. I don't blame Peter. I would be doing the same thing. But Jesus doesn't stop. He tells everyone that following him requires that they also must bear a cross. Which pretty much amounts to telling them that true discipleship will get you executed. Yay! Anybody else excited about following Jesus? Yay! Jesus warns that selling out your faith will mean losing your life. And that the Son of Man's disapproval upon His return with all the angels will be upon you if you disapprove of Him. The term Son of Man that Jesus uses is a messianic term. It literally means human being. Jesus is making it clear by using the phrase Son of Man that He is fully human and He is fully Messiah. He is fully God and He is fully man. Just like I said before, you can't just be a little pregnant. He's not just a little Messiah. He's fully God. 
He's fully human. You can't be a little bit God. You're either all God or you're not. And he says in verse 38, those who are ashamed of me in my world, words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. To be ashamed, it means to be disgraced. It means disgrace, to have grace taken away. Eugene Peterson translates that, translates that scripture in the message this way very well. He says, if any of you are embarrassed over me and the way I'm leading you when you get around your fickle and unfocused friends, know that you'll be at an even greater embarrassment to the Son of Man when he arrives in the splendor of God, his Father, with an army of holy angels. All this is to say today, who do others say Jesus is? I just told you the Jewish definition of what Messiah is. I just told you what their expectation is. And I cannot blame them for not believing Jesus was the Messiah. But I ask you this, who do you say Jesus is? I may have told you some things this morning that rocked your world a little bit. Maybe you thought, oh, Jesus fulfilled everything from Messiah. No, Jesus reimagined everything that we thought Messiah was going to be. We thought he was going to be this military leader that would come in and wipe out every enemy we had and then peace would come. And Jesus said, that's not the way peace comes. Peace will come not by me taking lives, but by laying down my very life for them. I would rather die than take their lives. And I would rather show them who I am by coming back victorious, not with a sword, but with arms open wide, with forgiveness, and invite them to the table. And that is the way that God will bring his kingdom into this world. So God's question to us today, it's a difficult question. I hope you will take it seriously and take time with it. Who do you say he is? Sue is the Greek word for you. And I told you before, a lot of times when Jesus says you, it's literally translated in Greek. If you do the English equivalent, it's southern. It's y'all. He's talking to everybody. But in this instance, Jesus uses the word Sue, which means individually, I'm asking you, every individual, your neighbor can't answer this for you, your family can't answer it for you, your friends can't answer it for you the adults in your life, your teachers, your preachers. No one can answer this question for you. Who do you say that I am? He is asking the individual, who do you personally say Jesus is? You must decide this. I want to leave you to decide this today. I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it. Who do you say Jesus is by the way you live your life? It's not just who you say Jesus is with your mouth. It's who you say Jesus is to your friends by the way you live. It's who you say Jesus is by the way you show your family who Jesus is. It's more about how you show it than how you say it. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he nothing more than something you worship on Sunday or when you go to camp but there's really not much influence in your life otherwise? Tonight, we're going to look more deeply at the Savior who I believe changes everything. Who I believe changes even our expectations of what Messiah was to be. 
We're going to look at how Jesus helps us to re-envision, reinterpret, and reimagine Scripture together in the way that only Jesus can do. Let's say our creed together this morning. In case I have shaken anyone's faith today, I want to affirm through the creed this morning. I want to affirm that this, as Christians, is what we believe. And as we say it together again for one last time this morning, this we believe. Let's stand together. We believe in the one high God who out of love created the beautiful world and everything good in it. He created man and wanted man to be happy in the world. God loves the world and every nation and tribe on the earth. We have known this high God in darkness, and we know him in the light. God promised in the book of his word, the Bible, that he would save the world and all the nations and tribes. We believe that God made good his promise by sending his son, Jesus Christ, a man in the flesh, a Jew by tribe, Born poor in a little village, who left his home and was always on safari doing good, curing people by the power of God, teaching about God and man, showing the meaning of religion is love. He was rejected by his people, tortured and nailed hands and feet to a cross and died. He lay buried in the grave, but the hyenas did not touch him. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. He ascended to the skies. He is the Lord. We believe that all our sins are forgiven through him. All who have faith in him must be sorry for their sins, be baptized in the Holy Spirit of God, live the rules of love, and share the bread together in love, to announce the good news to others until Jesus comes again. We are waiting for him. He is alive. He lives. This we believe. Amen. <coughs> our Lord Jesus, our Messiah Jesus, we come to you through God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit today. These are difficult teachings that we are looking at today. These are difficult sayings. Mark has not made it easy on us in writing his gospel and structuring it the way that he did. When we are told Jesus is Messiah, we are immediately given every reason in the world by Jesus to think that he is not, by God's own purpose, to show us that Jesus wants us to see Messiah in a different way than we ever expected or knew. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us as we grapple with this. We pray that you will help us as we ask your question, who do you say that I am? Lord, may we all be able to give an answer. Let it be so, Lord. Help us as we seek you in faith. We believe everything that we affirm in this creed today. Lord, from the places that we believe wholeheartedly, praise God for it. Let our belief be even stronger. But for those of us who are like some of the disciples, and those who came to Jesus that would say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me in my places of unbelief. We pray that today. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit we pray all these things. Amen. We'll see you guys tonight. Make sure you love on all your camp workers today. You've been listening to Voices in My Head. 
the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience. So if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.